Chiron. Hey, Professor Kreiner. First of all, thanks for taking the time. Uh, welcome to Politicology. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful to our mutual friend, uh, Congressman Steve Israel, for, for connecting us. And um, uh, for everybody listening, uh, you are the Clinton Rossiter Professor in American Institutions at Cornell. Um, do you want to do you want to give a little bit of your background and what you what you focus on in particular? Sure. Uh, I'm a professor of government, and I study normally American political institutions. So I study the presidency and the Congress uh, and separation of powers. I also have some substantive interest in U.S. foreign policy, as well as science and technology policy. And I believe you are the author of uh, award-winning author of multiple books, uh, including on the presidency and, and separation of power dynamics, among other things. Yes. Yes. Um, so uh, we we've spent. It, it, I was grateful to Steve for sending this out to me because it caught my eye, this this study that you worked with him on. Um, we have spent a considerable amount of time uh, on the show with practicing strategists and, and pollsters explaining to listeners how to read and how to not read different types of polls, especially national polls, which mm-hmm. would be very misleading and sometimes really useless uh, and distracting. And this this study caught my eye because you both took a unique approach. Um, can you describe uh, the approach you took and then and then why? What, what were you looking to find? Absolutely. So uh, what's unique about this survey, you might ask yourself if you <laughs> have done any Googling around on the, on the web, like why do we need another survey about Americans' attitudes toward democracy? There right. are a plethora of them out there, right? Um, but what makes this survey somewhat unique is that there's sort of three different parts of the survey. There's your general population national sample, which is what the vast majority, overwhelming majority of these surveys on democratic attitudes have, but we use it somewhat really as a baseline. Uh, And then we decided to do uh, roughly 500 person targeted samples in two key swing uh, congressional districts. So Texas is 15th district, a majority minority district, and Michigan's 8th district, uh, both on a razor's edge. uh, And, you know, I think this lets us test a couple of different hypotheses. First off, just, you know, does, do things look differently uh, in the swing constituencies that sort of decide the balance of uh, the tipping points, but they decide the balance of power in Congress uh, than they do in the country as a whole. Uh, and then maybe a little bit more wonkishy or nerdy political science um, you know, it gives us some insight into polarization. So on the one hand, we might say like things are so nationalized and our politics are so polarized the Democrats are going to be Democrats pretty much regardless of where they is. The, the old Tip O'Neill, all politics are local, that's gone. Um, Republicans are going to be Republicans. And we wouldn't expect to see big differences between the national sample and the swing districts, um, except for whatever, especially not once we control the party or when we look at Republicans or Republicans, Democrats and Democrats, independents and independents. Uh, alternately, you know, folks that live in swing districts, they see politics conceivably through a really different lens than we do. Uh, they have different types of political elites and the parties are battling for their attention. Uh, maybe they're adopting somewhat more moderate tones depending on, uh, on the specific dynamics. But there are other reasons to think that we'd see some of these differences. And our survey was really consciously designed to allow us to dig into this a bit more. So this is really useful. This is a really useful way of thinking about polling right now, because as I've discussed with uh, Steve on the podcast a couple of times, uh, I think rank and file voters, especially even within you know the activism wings of both parties, 
are trained to think about the issues as com- completely polarized, completely binary, and they're they're usually not uh, concerned with the balance of power, especially at the House. And obviously, you know, Steve chaired the Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee, focused on the balance of power, which is why these swing districts are so important. But we should note there are fewer of them now than I think there have been in recent memory, and that's because of you know a lot of different factors. But when we talk about the balance of power, we're talking about a shrinking number of congressional districts in the House um, that are actually competitive, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what did you find in the differences between national attitudes and the swing district results? So let me just start with with one uh, real quick overview before we can get into some of the more uh, yeah. specifics about threats to democracy uh, and you know uh, support for different types of reforms. So one thing we were just kind of interested in is you know, <laughs> on a basic factual question, or what for a lot of people is a factual question. Uh, you know, do you see differences? Uh, so one question that we asked was just, do you think that Joe Biden legitimately won enough votes? to win the presidency or not. And as you would expect, you know, there's a big partisan split here. Uh, Democrats almost universally say Biden legitimately won. Independents, eh, about 70% that said so, and only about one in four Republicans. Uh, But on this question, there's no significant difference whether you are in the national sample or in either of these two swing districts. But let's look at another one that might be particularly interesting for Democratic and for the DCCC and RCCC heads, right, as they, uh, as they think about their messaging strategy for November. We asked another question that's a little more subjective. You know, the standard, is the country on the right track? Mm-hmm. Uh, and on this one, there's really bad news for Democrats. Uh, so in the national sample, about 65% of Democrats said that um, the country's on the right track. That's 10 points lower, uh, a little more than 10 points lower. In Michigan, eight, uh, and it's almost 15 points lower. Actually, more than 15 points lower in Texas, 15. Uh, and even Ditto uh, Independents, sort of, the, you know, there are fewer of them, so we have pretty big confidence intervals. But Ditto on the Republican side. Now, not many Republicans say the country's on the right track. Period. Uh, but significantly more Republicans uh, said we're on the right track in the national sample than in either of those two swing districts. So oh, even on these sort of big meta questions, before we dig into the, the rest of it, you can see some pretty significant differences uh, in ways that can have a lot of political impact. Yeah. Okay. So what are the top things that stood out to you uh, from, from, from the research, right? There were things that, you know, I, I was surprised at looking at this, but I want to know what you were, what you were surprised by when you read the results. Yeah, so um, <laughs> the problem is when you have such a big survey, is kind of trying to figure out, geez, uh, which parts people are going to find most interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, some of it is exactly what you'd expect. You know, if you ask a question, uh, was January 6th a major threat uh, to American democracy? Democrats are going to say so pretty much regardless of where they, are, where they live. Mm-hmm. Republicans, not so much. Uh, although I will add, even on the question of Texas uh, of January 6th, Republicans in Texas 15 were much more likely uh, to say that it was a major uh, to say it was a major medium threat to democracy uh, than Republicans in the national sample. So even there, we start to see some of these differences. Um, but January 6, uh, another related one: uh, members of Congress pressuring the Department of Justice on the election results. Here you sort of see, yep, there are some differences across the samples, but it's partisan polarization. Just 
Dems, then independents, then Republicans. But on other questions like uh, removing election workers uh, and uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, especially on removing election workers, you see yeah. pretty very little evidence of polarization. There's pretty strong support across the uh, across all uh, sides of the aisle. So sometimes on some of these questions, we see a difference in intensity of support. Um, so we measure them on Likert scales. And if you look at it, uh, like say on another issue, canceling free speech, uh, Republicans might think this must be much more likely to say this is a major threat uh, than uh, than Democrats are. But when you start pulling together sort of, you know, the major and medium threat, uh, you, you don't see nearly as much of a, of a partisan divide. So really it comes down to where, what issues aren't polarized? That would be sort right. of one finding. These things that have to do with ensuring that election results are free and fair. Um, and on the Democratic side of the aisle, one sort of uh, surprise to this might be that there's a lot of support among Democrats, particularly in Texas 15, uh, for photo ID laws. And that's even after controlling for like I said, party, but also for race and ethnicity. So, you know, race and ethnicity matters there, but you know, a lot of Democrats, including in these key swing uh, constituencies, are in favor uh, of that type of a step. And on the Republican side, uh, we asked a question about basically without without saying it, do you support greater federal oversight, uh, basically restoring the Voting Rights Act uh, preclearance provisions? And mm-hmm. not nearly as much strong support for that on the Republican side, but a lot of people in that sort of yeah, somewhat support category. When you lump them together, the the partisan gap isn't uh, isn't all that big. So. There are some of these points of, uh, of sort of broad consensus on these issues. Um, ditto on uh, the question of free speech. People were, were concerned across the aisle uh, about efforts to curtail free speech. They considered it a winning argument for a hypothetical member of Congress in one of the things. But then you can move into something else like canceling history. And now you see the polarization, right? That's a Republican yeah. issue. And Republicans are really concerned. Democrats, not so much. But when it comes to the broader question of free speech, you saw a lot of concern among Democratic voters. That one really did surprise me. That was the thing that, that stood out to me, that they believe cancel culture is real. Because if you spend any time on Twitter or, or watching cable news, which I don't do uh, very often, uh, you would think this is a straight up and down, you know, Democrats think one way, Republicans think another way. So it's the pinnacle of the culture war. And that didn't, that didn't bear out in the findings, at least in these locations. Is that right? Yeah. So. Um, you know, on on terms of threat, there's really very uh, perceived threat to democracy. There wasn't much of a partisan gap uh, on that. Republicans are a little higher and Democrats a little lower, but but it's really modest compared to other yeah. things. Like I said, canceling history, for instance, that's that sort of has that partisan bell whistle attached to it. Right. Um, right. You know, when you and actually we see we, the the differences are somewhat modest, but. We had a split sample late, uh, later on the survey asking about support for reforms. And, you know, when you talk about strengthening free speech rights, you know, there's a little partisan gap, but not much of one. It gets a little bit bigger when you say end cancel culture uh, with Republicans a little bit higher and Democrats a little bit lower. But overall, uh, quite modest compared to something like stopping social media censorship. Now, Democrats aren't as nearly as concerned about that as Republicans are. But they're much more supportive, and that gap is much smaller when it comes to defending free speech rights. That is so interesting. Do you I, you worked with Anna Greenberg on this long time sort of pollster, veteran pollster? Uh, it was very very good. Um, did you find that you had to 
you be very careful with the wording of these things as you were asking them so you didn't invoke uh, sort of preloaded ideas about what you were asking or, or did you use the terms that are often used in the media when you're asking these questions? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And so we did work close with Anna on the design of the survey and benefited greatly from her expertise in doing so. And, you know, throughout the survey, it's one thing that's really hard <laughs> to communicate in a quick op-ed, um, you know, we had wording splits. Uh, so, like I said, one could be about strengthening free speech versus ending cancel culture. Uh, so half got one variant, half got the other. And you can sort of see, like, to what extent does the language polarize? Does it polarize differently in different parts of the country? We can sort of really dig into some of that. Um, uh, we had things on, you know, if you want to look at campaign finance reform, you know, does it matter if you evoke dark money versus if you just talk about special interests wielding disproportionate influence? And in some cases, you saw relatively small differences. In other cases, you see really big differences. But there were a lot of opportunities throughout the uh, the survey where we did try and look at, uh, you know, slight changes in the words, wording that might have a connotation more on the left or the right. Uh, and then, you know, when we see the splits and when we don't. This is really useful, I think, for our listeners to understand that this is exactly why uh, campaign pollsters and party pollsters uh, are, are meticulous about the wording they use, not just in polls, but then in messages, right? So when we say a poll-tested message, this is exactly what we mean. If you could be talking about the same thing, but use a slightly different phrase to discuss it, and you change public opinion dramatically, at least you change the findings. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to give a, a shout-out to Anna and a, a more concrete example, if I could, uh, yeah. of something just like this. So you know, um, one of the uh, experiments that was embedded in the survey was a political ad experiment, really similar to ones that, you know, Anna said she'd do for any candidate, right, when you're poll testing mm -hmm. a message. Uh, so it was a hypothetical uh, race for Congress, right, uh, against, you know, Daniel Williams and John Davis, no party labels attached. Of course, when you put mm -hmm. party labels on, things are going to change. But anyone who reads this, you can sort of figure out that Davis is the Republican and Williams is the Democrat. Um, we were sort of looking at, uh, the efficacy of, of, uh, two different messages. Uh, so both really about trying to emphasize the need to take affirmative steps to shore up our democracy. So in the first, the, what we call the for the people ad, uh, it's more positive in tone. Uh, so if elected, you know, Daniel Williams will combat dark money and he'll fight to ensure that the people's voice is heard. The second ad, which you might just sort of call the political violence ad, really emphasized the direct threat, uh, direct threat that was facing democracy uh, and the need to combat it aggressively. You know, emphasizing thing violence that we saw seen on, that we saw on January 6th, hang Mike Pence. Um, you know, uh, violent protests uh, interfering with the counting of votes, um, and we just sort of wanted to see: does it matter? Do you get any differences uh, across these? And here I thought uh, was a really interesting one in terms of the difference between swing district voters and the national sample to get back to that opening theme. Yeah. So when we looked at the national sample, there's no effect, no difference in support for Williams versus his opponent Davis uh, among Democrats. Among Republicans, nope. Among independents, there's a, a slight uh, positive effect for the for the people ad. People like the more positive vision than the than the violence ad. But Democrats and Republicans are pretty much frozen. Wow. In the two swing districts, Michigan eight and Texas fifteen, 
before the people ad significantly increased the support for Williams across all three partisan groups. Wow. So it was a really interesting finding that you, you know, that sort of, you know, Democrats and Republicans in those swing districts respond to this message in a way that in the national sample, they're just completely unmovable. That is extraordinarily instructive, especially when you consider these are places that determine the balance of power. What other lessons do you think uh, people who are, let's say, running and planning to run campaigns right now uh, during the midterms could take away from what you found here? Setting aside the you know, dynamics of every race, are there, are there lessons here that you think you know, practitioners need to grab onto? Yeah. So. Um, you know, going back to, uh, we had one question, uh, that was sort of, it, was, it came after the experiment that I just mentioned. Uh, and we asked a bunch of different sort of just, uh, how does this, how does this message make you feel? Uh, how does this message make you feel towards a candidate if they were running on this? And then at the end, we asked the question in your mind, which of the following reasons is the best reason to support this candidate for Congress? Um, and, you know, sort of the choices and there were some split sample wordings in there. So I'm trying to simplify as much as I can as we can look at moving forward on civil rights, uh, ensuring that all can vote, eliminating dark money or uh, limiting the amount of money in politics, protecting the election results and protecting free speech. Protecting the election results was actually chosen in the national sample uh, sort of by far and away as the most popular. Um, And it did well in the two swing constituencies too. So, you know, uh, I, when you couple that with um, with uh, the previous results, I think sort of staying away uh, from things that are emphasizing the violence and what's tearing our country apart, uh, and instead mm-hmm. really trying to, if you wanted to have democracy be a doc, democracy promotion be part of your message, I don't think I'd recommend mm-hmm. from this being a central part. Part of it is you know, just sort of really reassuring, taking steps to reassure people that their vote's going to be counted. Uh, and it's going to be fair and impartial. There was a lot of support uh, in the survey, for instance, for ensuring nonpartisan poll watchers uh, and removing politicians from the counting of votes and making them independent. But sort of taking that sort of common sense step message uh, seemed to uh, to resonate a lot with voters. Number two was protect free speech. Uh, and that was actually the number one most, uh, uh, most commonly chosen option in Texas 15. Uh, so, you know, different parts of the country, different messages, obviously. Uh, yeah. And there's one where you're in a majority minority district. And I think a lot of Democrats in particular probably wouldn't think that uh, <laughs> concerns about speech or arguments about the need to protect free speech are going to be all that salient or resonate. Uh, but at least among uh, the survey respondents that we had in, in an address-based probability sample in Texas 15, uh, that, that message resonated quite strongly, much more so than saying that we were going to move forward on civil rights or ensure that all uh, who all can vote. This is extremely useful, and I thought it was a brilliant approach. Uh, Doug, thanks for taking the time to chat for a few minutes. If people want to follow your work uh, or find you on the internet, Gasp, <laughs> where can they find you? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm happy to email you my website, uh, or if you just go to the Cornell government page, uh, I'm on there. And if you click from uh, from my little bio there, it'll take you to my webpage. A lot of my work's up there. And I uh, look forward right. to interacting with anyone who has questions. Excellent. Terrific. We'll link to it in the uh, episode notes. And I'd love to have you back on the show soon. Thanks so much. Really appreciate your time, Ron. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.